Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. And we are discussing today another of our anti-holiday, holiday-adjacent, holiday-themed movies, Scent of a Walleye. (gasps) I was going to say Scent of Jim Beam. Yeah. Same wavelength. (laughs) Right? If, well, they didn't stay at school. And so the Boston trip kind of had echoes of, of Charlie and Slade in scent of a woman going to New York. But this was also a little bit like Dutch. If Doyle had stayed at school and Dutch went to like hang out with him at school, it's like hijinks ensue, but kind of a lot of it at at a school. Gotcha. Because Dutch is the road trip movie. Yeah. And Finn Wolfhard was very Doyle in this movie. Finn Wolfhard? Yeah, Tully. That's not Finn Wolfhard. That's Dominic Sessa. He looks just like Finn Wolfhard. Dude, Kelly Ray, she was watching the movie, and I always listen to what she says because she doesn't talk a lot during movies, but what she says is typically funny and worth writing down. She was like, that dude's Adam's apple is out of control. Is it a condition? (laughs) (laughs) It is awfully flicky. It moves kind of erratically. Like it doesn't even move necessarily in sync with his speech. Finn Wolfhard. Wasn't he in Introducing? Yes, this kid had never been in front of a camera. He was in some janky, like, Westmont-style plays, and his audition didn't go terribly well. He was like, oh, I'm in front of a camera. I have to act. I have to be acty. And so he emoted, and they were like, dude, just take it easy. And apparently, Alexander Payne regards him as a real natural. He says he had never seen anyone who is naturally a gifted actor like this, like right out of the gate. I think that you can feel he's a little green, but I mostly attributed it to his character's just coming of age awkwardness. Like he's a kid. He could be anyone. And it doesn't matter because if you have Paul Giamatti in your corner, it's all going to be all right. Interesting. So you're a Paul Giamatti fan. I am a Paul Giamatti fan, also because he looks like my niece, but because Paul Giamatti is Paul in this movie. He is so Paul Giamatti in this movie. Alexander Payne talking about how he cannot conceive anyone, practically speaking, a modern day actor who could have played this role besides Paul Giamatti for whom it was written. I don't know what it says about my genes that Paloma looks like Paul Giamatti and that I'm often compared to Tim Curry. You are often compared to Tim Curry? Yep. That's weird. Like Home Alone to Tim Curry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So when they're talking about the schmuck who's going to be stuck with the kids, the holdovers over the break, they're like, poor wall-eyed bastard got stuck with the thing. When we saw him, Paul Giamatti, I was like, oh, he's the wall-eyed bastard that they were talking about. And Kelly Um, Ray's like, of course he is. (laughs) 
wow, wait a second. Is it because you did not notice the wall-eyedness of the Paul Hunnam character? I Look, I love Paul Giamatti. I wasn't sure if it was actually wall-eyed or if what? it was just Paul Giamatti. I will ad- acknowledge that as it went on, it was more and more obvious, especially since attention was drawn to it. But it just looks like that. It could have been Paul no. Giamatti. And I was like, that's kind of mean and on the nose <laughs> no. if it's especially written for Paul Giamatti that they call on him. the eye wall-eyed and stinky <laughs> this but is so what it could halfway have been his through eye. the movie no halfway through the movie i spoke up and was like man how do you <laughs> think they did that with his eye and brian was like did what this is just him i was like his eye his, <laughs> his eye and he was like what do you mean and i was like what do you mean we're halfway through this movie. Have you not noticed that there's something going on with his eye? They called him a wall-eyed bastard. He was like, oh I God. thought that was just Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you people? That is exactly where I was. In all of the dozens of movies you've seen him in, you don't think you would have noticed that? Um, look, whatever. He's fine. It's fine. It's just maybe he had a, a Bill Skarsgård-like talent. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it is so glaringly obvious, and it was uh, distracting. Like I was looking, I felt like it was a dark comedic fu for him to tell us <laughs> what I look at so late in the movie. You could have spared me a lot of anxiety and just told me which I like on page ten. Seriously, oh, <laughs> because afterward God. I was like, finally, okay, now I know. Oh man. And so that's the problem. When you're a teacher, you're under a lot of scrutiny. And it's an impermanent relationship. You have te- you know, students that are you're never going to see again, hopefully. In most of the cases, you hope so. And they will mercilessly make fun of you. You know, behind your back when this movie was set in the 70s, even though you overhear stuff. But in the modern day, probably right to your face for the likes on the gram or whatever. And I, I think that your, phys- your outward flaws in the face of a daily audience year after year that switches out, you just kind of roll with it. He He's like, yeah, I got a wonky. He didn't directly acknowledge it, but he didn't even know about the smell. Mary brings up, you know, and you know, with the thing, with the thing, implying, you know, he knows obviously that he smells right. And he's like, what? What do you mean? I don't know. No, he knows. He has scientific names and explanations for all of yeah, these ailments, that's true. including the stinky pits. And he doesn't he doesn't process the protein and he's got sweating palms and he knows the names for these diseases. And so I, I really do think that teachers, while not being a necessarily glamorous job, although some people make it glamorous, I'm sure, they spend probably less time than anyone being overly concerned about how they look or how they present to kids who are going to be horrible anyway. They're just like, yeah, I got flaws. I roll with it. I acknowledge I, even if I don't acknowledge it directly to you, they're well aware. I mean, the tenured Harvard statistics guy totally had female students writing I love you on their eyelids, right? Yeah. We're referring to Raiders of the Lost Ark there. He was aware of his flaws, and yes, they were kind of relentless, but he was also kind of impervious to them. I mean, if you ever taught your film adaptation class, you Uh would definitely do it like remote, off-camera, like the whale style, right? With a filter, absolutely. I would blur out everything and and make myself a cat like that poor lawyer. (laughs) What? Oh, that was the best. That was, I mean, the guy, the lawyer logs on for a video conference with the judge and he's got a cat filter 
And so he's obviously <laughs> concerned. And the cat eyebrows are like, he's like got cat sad eyes because the person is emoting and, and the cat visage is reflecting that. And he's like, oh, uh, uh, we're trying to fix it. Like somebody, some kid or his daughter or something put a filter on it and then the judge the lawyer gets on with the judge and he's like i'm I'm here judge i'm not a cat and they're like i think we can see that and he's trying it's pretty good but yes absolutely i would hide behind every modern uh scrim and screen that i possibly could so before we get into the shenanigans and antics of this movie where they're you know running around ferris bueller style in boston i do want to address this idea of professors he's like i don't care you're here and if you screw up the test i'm going to give you an f plus and i'm not going to take into consideration what you may be going through and i'm also not going to see hey there's a problem here that a, a, a gap i need to bridge because i want to find a way for you to connect to this material and the way i'm teaching it is it a problem with my style he doesn't care at all and i wonder if that's realistic does he care deeply about teaching or so much about education or does he not care at all? I think his character is a rock and an island <laughs> and that he is more concerned about his thinly veiled self-pity than he is about his actual subject matter. He does know a lot about ancient history or what it, whatever it was that he specifically said was his passion and he buries himself in it. But I think that, yeah, he never kind of got over feeling sorry for himself he was never able to get that chip off his shoulder, especially when he was cast to the side and whatever, you know, shenanigans he he endured with the test and copying on the test and stuff. But the Paul character kind of became less reliable to me where I, I even wonder if he was telling the truth about what went down with the test debacle. You know, Paul Giamatti said the same thing. He talked about, not specifically that, but he talked about his friend, like the, the character that Paul mentioned, having a friend in Syracuse. Paul Giamatti doesn't know if that dude was telling the truth, if he really has a friend that he could go and stay with for a while before he goes to Antwerp or wherever he was going, Syracuse, wherever he was going, um, he wasn't sure. And he said that of, of his characters, he knows the least about this guy, what's actually going to happen to him. You can kind of get a sense or you can play out scenarios in your head of what would happen to his character from Sideways and things, the other Alexander Payne movie that he was in. But for this one, he said, I don't know what's going to happen to that dude. And I really hope he does well, but I cannot be sure. These kind of guys who don't need much can kind of get by. And maybe that's what the Paul character is banking on. He had a dirty toilet and his preparation H in the bathroom. <laughs> And like a no, messy apartment. It, was, and... it wasn't a dirty toilet. It was a disconcerting stain on like the radiator up on the wall next to the toilet. <laughs> Which he also just didn't care about, right? In his messy <laughs> apartment. And he can't even be bothered with Christmas cookies. You know, this guy doesn't need much. And therefore, he can kind of scurry off to the next corner and just live out the rest of his kind of sad existence. Yep. Was he changed by his experience with Angus Tully or is it kind of that scent of a woman mystery where it's like we've just staved off the inevitable bad ending? Well, the setup for him leaving the school, which was all he had, he confessed that he made this in his entire life. It is really all he had. And his hand was forced, but he was already one foot out the door. Like he he was not engaging. He wasn't a particularly good teacher, I don't think, because of his lack of desire to engage when his students are so obviously floundering. He was outright defying his headmaster already. Right. Already on the outs with him. 
it, it was just the nudge. I guess he needed to get out the door, but it doesn't feel like he was filled with promise or opportunity anymore. It felt like he was redeemed or found love or found family in this hodgepodge group of people, these holdovers. So the, so the stakes were a little bit muddy because it wasn't to me particularly impactful. I was like, this is an injustice. And this Tully kid does not deserve you throwing yourself on the sword for him. You know what I mean? And there's no, oh, Captain, my Captain Dead Poet Society moment where the, the students stand up in defiance of a teacher taking the brunt or whatever for, for misdoings. The stakes were kind of smoothed over and bland uniformly in this movie. Things happened, but nothing happened that was rousing or stirring. Like it was a simple return to a glimpse of humanity for the Paul <laughs> character and maybe a coming of age story for the Angus Tully character who maybe finally sees his dad for the first time or maybe how complex it is to be an adult. I didn't see how visiting his dad would f affect the story. I was like, what does this bring to the story? And of course, ultimately, it brings about the change that happens where Paul leaves the school and Tully doesn't. But that was it. I thought you were going to say that this is just a sort of return to this dramatic storytelling that happened around the year this movie was set, 1970, with the old Warner Brothers logo and the a retro stylized Miramax logo and stuff. And it's like, those didn't exist in 1970, but whatever. I was about to say, was Focus Features around back then? Right. It was meant to look like a 1970s movie. And yet, despite that setup and despite the little you know pops and hisses in the, uh, the logos and things, and the fact that this movie movie was filtered down, shot digitally, which is funny, for a 70s period movie. I didn't know it. This movie, he was so Paul Giamatti that I thought this movie was set in the present day. You didn't feel that? <laughs> uh, not present day, for sure. Because, mostly just because of all of the hair. Exactly. That, it's what hair looks like now. I wasn't convinced until I saw all the cars. All of these old East Coast educational institutions kind of have this timeless quality to them. You know, maybe it was a mix of, you know, it's been a while for Alexander Payne. And also he was reaching for something more timeless. But since it was happening over New Year's, he had to pick a time. Maybe this is Alexander Payne's Armageddon time. Mm, maybe in, in that things happen and there are sure family dramas and there are concerns and traumas the family has experienced. And there's this looming specter of what could happen with nuclear annihilation. But that doesn't happen either. And I guess a thing does happen in that Hunnam is forced out of the school and in Armageddon. Well, I can't spoil what that what happens in that movie, but I'm not going to say it drastically alters the fabric of who these people are. I, I was frustrated with Armageddon time and its lack of commitment to anything. And I guess in that way, I was with the holdovers, too, with the exception that I give Alexander Payne some license. He doesn't have to impress me in quite the same way to get me on board as I felt that Armageddon time needed to. I was like, oh, an Alexander Payne movie. This is going to be, if nothing else, entertaining and compelling enough to get me all the way through the movie without feeling angry. There's not the hilarity of the Descendants or Election or the funnier parts of Sideways, you know, I, I, with the possible exception of the running, chasing him through the halls of the school, <laughs> detention card in hand. But that, <laughs> that part didn't make me laugh. No. I think that the closest I got to laughing was with Mary Lamb 
just her dry, deadpan wisdom. And so her grounded wisdom and lack of facade, you know, she chooses her words carefully and she's very careful about who she shares it with and is very honest and forthright. You would think she would be more aware than her little outburst at the party, which I totally saw coming and was thinking, Mary, not here. Just, Mary, go into the garage or something. You can't break down in someone in a stranger's party in their kitchen. Like, she should um, have been more careful and aware. It, it was kind of brewing. Which maybe speaks to her absolute grief in that moment. Don't touch that goddamn record. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely brewing. You knew that it was coming. Yep. And it, and it had basically been brewing and percolating, like, the entire movie. Her expression in the church, I was like, oof. That's grief time bomb waiting to happen. Remember when they call out her son at the ending chapel ceremony? Oh, chapel? my God. And then told the whole school, man, this is going to be a horrible holiday season for you. See ya. Let's go to St. Bart's or wherever they were all going. <laughs> right. St. Kitts. Yep. That is a microcosm of this movie is why? Just why? Did you find yourself impatient going through this movie? Yes. When we finished this movie, Kelly and I, we just kind of like got on our phones and we were playing cards or whatever. And we were like, well, so we ticked that movie off. But neither one of us was like, this was engaging as a motion picture. And it's more interesting to ask the question of why Saltburn was Saltburn. Not so much with the holdovers necessarily, but I wasn't angry. I, I was just sort of like, I hope a thing happens. And it felt to me like it was frozen onion, not glass onion. But it feel, felt like there were layers and we're trying to find the core of this movie. And I really thought every single one of the holdovers, including floppy haired Zac Efron kid and meek little, you know, Korean kid, I thought were going to be a huge part of the, that this was yes. going to be over the break, Dead Poet Society. We peeled those frozen layers away. We got to Boston. That was another layer. This is what the story is really about. We had this weird, lengthy goodbye uh, emotional scene with Mary. And then she disappeared. And I was like, we're not going to see her again until the end of this movie. Mark my words. We got her out of the way to focus, peeled back another frozen layer to focus on Paul, Hunnam, and Tully in Boston and what their relationship meant. But uh, the title, I guess, only applied to two people. No, one person. Paul Giamatti was going to be there anyway. <laughs> anyway. He was going to read novels in his room and Mary was going to be in her thing. And maybe they would have laughed and smoked over the dating game or whatever. But the only holdover in the movie was Tully for the vast majority of it. Exactly. We invested in these characters and their dynamic. There's all this conflict between... Tully and the Zac Efron kid, which, what was his name? Good tension, right? It was going to be a thing. One of them was going to get punched yes. in the face. Absolutely. They were going to be all over each other. They were going to be fighting the entire winter break until they made out at the end. And <laughs> it was going to be all good, right? But no, then they just flit off on the, on the helicopter after their ski trip. And I don't know what it was supposed to mean. Was it supposed to be a slight to the Tully character, further injury that he wasn't on the beach in St. Kitts in his James Bond briefs? Was it further <laughs> insult to Hunnam that he has no life and no friends to go to? Like, what was the point of all the setup if they were simply going to flit off and not return until the very end? 
we didn't come back to the school for any consequence. Like there was no reason that we needed to see the Zac Efron character or the, the Asian kid again. They were just sort of there or whatever, which that part was a little bit frustrating. But I, I do think the Tully character in his relationship with Hunnam, because he was a teacher, was really super extra guarded. So we didn't get a glimpse into his personality except with the other kids. And I thought after he, after Asian kid peed the bed or whatever, and, and the way he regarded him, I was like, okay, well, he's got a soft side. And then when he got all crappy and started like defacing the school and running around and being a jerk, I was like, he was way too nice to be this much of a punk. And then I realized he's just dumb and really stubborn, like a spoiled kid. Like when he pisses off Lieutenant Dan in the bar, like that wasn't, he wasn't being deliberately provocative. He was just dumb and didn't know how to act around people. I was shocked that the Paul character was able to de-escalate that situation. Yeah, just buy him food, get him to sit down. It's like, sorry, he's mentally challenged or whatever. And he didn't mean what he said. That's what I would have went with. I mean, basically, it was the server, the Lydia Crane character that did all the work. She's like, he's trying to buy you a beer. And they were like, oh, oh, okay. We like beer. Yeah. And then they were able to find their way through it. But I felt like both of them with their so their social awkwardness and kind of, yeah, they're just kind of dumb socially that they <laughs> were, they were going to further bungle that. And that was going to be the big, you know, bar fight scene yep. where they're crawling amongst the glass, the broken glass on the floor, and they're trying to get out of there like Indiana Jones style. Cool running style. Come on. Oh, yeah. So do you think that the setups for potential in this movie that never came to fruition, I'm thinking that might have been one of the more frustrating aspects, i.e. all the kids set up who just took off in a helicopter. The idea of him being set up with this other teacher who was very sweet and unfortunately like the absolute best slash worst ones are who are so nice. And I've known people like that who are chronically accused of being flirtatious when they're just being nice. Right. And that it seemed like that was set up and then she kisses her husband or her boyfriend or whatever and you're like, ah. And Paul Giamatti is like, Arr. and then I thought for a minute he was going they were going to give it to Paul and Mary together. And then they obviously didn't do that. And a lot of those things didn't really pan out so much so that when I when Mary left to go see her sister, I was like, that's it for Mary. She's not going to meaningfully contribute anything more to the story of this movie. But to the filmmaker's credit, Mary has her own story and her own journey that she's going on. This is a three-hander in that way, and I appreciated that. Um, Divine Joy, I remember from really standing out in the Sandra Bullock movie. Yeah, The Lost uh, City. The... She, yeah, she was the embodiment of the theme of that movie, maybe. I mean, and she was just so fun to watch. She was such a great character in that movie. Uh, so I was glad in that way that this was a three-hander and that all three of these characters have their journeys as disparate as they may be all of the potentialities that don't come to fruition that don't pan out as you said are what i think make the holdovers real this is like a real life type movie and i think that the critics are going to get behind it as they kind of already are but i don't know that this makes it a good movie <laughs> that it makes it a compelling story uh, maybe i'm desensitized because i need something big to happen 
And I really found the holdovers to be rather boring. Man, that's the uh, contemporary moviegoer in you. Look, this is an old movie. He wanted it to seem like it had been made and locked in a vault and released 53 years later. I will say I agree with you. It, it was frustrating and, and just for me a little bit, maybe the word is better, disappointing for an Alexander Payne movie. But it, it was not the, so the much... The word is boring, Wes. Just say it. it, Okay, got it. But it it was kind of more a mishandling of some of the things that I thought had more potential for a livelier story. And I think the setup and the frustration in his lack of ability, he he seemed open. I was like, the stinky guy's going to find love. That's like a heroic tale for other stinky people with ocular deficiencies or whatever. But you remember how he was trying to do the thing, like the kid, give the kid a beer for God's sake. They won't let the kid order Cherry's Jubilee because of the intention of them to, that they were going to share it. It's ridiculous. She said that's that gotta alcohol, be a seventies thing. God, it's so frustrating because obviously adults can order drinks with kids at the table, but I would think it would be more lenient in 1970 where of course the kid right. can have a sip of beer or a drag on the cigarette. He's got to learn sometime. Right. I mean, he was, he, he was, he seemed like pretty old so that he almost could have gotten away with ordering a drink himself and not being questioned. Yeah. I was, I was angry at the way they handled that furious with their handling of the cherries Jubilee. They're like, okay, we're going to do this parking lot style, unconventional style. We're going to make our own cherries Jubilee and then made it. And it was like, uh, like maybe don't do that in a paper container, like a to go. Cause that's a bad idea, but it didn't matter because they dumped the thing on the ground and they dropped the whole thing literally and figuratively. And I was like, Oh, that's frustrating. It, that the handling of the Cherry's Jubilee was as bad as their <laughs> ignorance of the other great potential, which is the M80s indoors in a pub, in a private school. They could have had a lot of those, and they could have had a lot of fun with fireworks in the snow, Dutch style. They didn't do it. We see it from outside the window, so removed. You don't, dude. I'm not, I'm telling you, those weren't firecrackers. Though that was an M80. I've held those. I've blown those things up. You don't do that indoors. That's going to compromise your hearing permanently. And we all know that Paul Hunnam doesn't need any more, you know, deficiencies when it comes to his sensory. (laughs) Anyway, um, and then coming back for the scent of a woman style interrogation courtroom scene where he like, why would going to visit his father, which I understand was inadvisable bad okay particularly on teacher's part for sanctioning it kelly ray brought up why would tully going to visit his father as he told mary why would that get him kicked out of school his parents were inconvenienced and basically it was strike three with his parents who were going to place him in the military school for his own good so the question i think is actually how did hunnam's sacrifice actually save tully i mean i guess he was taking on the bad behavior responsibility and therefore alleviating angus of it and maybe two two hours and nine minutes later that explains paul hunnam's real devotion to education because apparently at the military academy he couldn't be assured that tully would get a proper education for the smart kid with so much potential well, you know, let's not go crazy, but he has some potential. But he, I think it also, I think it was his loyalty to Barton. He believes in Barton and its, abil- and its ability to turn out fine young men and that Tully can be one of those Barton men that he, he? is so proud to be himself. It, is it, Tully going to be a fine young man? 
Yeah, he's going to turn it all around now because uh-huh. the holdovers has to have some meaning. Does Tully understand the sacrifice that Paul Hunnam made for him? Yeah. Because he shows up at the trunk? Not enough to give him a hug at the boot of the car, <laughs> no. but he gives him and a then, handshake. What does he say after after destroying the only thing that Paul Hunnam has in the world? He's like, see ya, and trots off to go have <laughs> peach cobbler or whatever in the thing. He's I was like, oh my kid. God, are, are we going to end this? Are we going to end Tully on a see ya? And we did, because this is that kind of movie where the fun of it is not seeing the heartwarming resolutions to all these dramas. There's not going to be like, oh, he's Mary's surrogate son. And even though they're only together for a year or two, she's going to, it's going to show her, you know, give her another child to care about. And he doesn't have a caring parents or mom. So maybe he'll find some pseudo parental units in these two characters and they'll all watch the dating game or something together man it just wasn't heartwarming and good like i wanted it to be it was heartwarming the the holdovers was heartwarming like jim beam is heartwarming like temporarily it briefly enlivens the old cockles but it's not enough to do any real good or make a make a, a lasting contribution to your happiness. I was like, now's a chance where he gets to prove that he doesn't care what other people think and give Professor Hunnam a hug. Nope. Nope. He's not going to touch that guy. <laughs> He's not going to do that. He's not going to get that stank on him. Uh-uh. See ya. You know, I was in a bad mood, like similar <laughs> to your starting past lives. And unfortunately, the holdovers did not bring me out of it. It was beautifully shot. It's got a masterful pace. You know, it's it's made by a filmmaker who seemed like they had a vision, and it's boring. Man. So, okay, so and that's our discussion of Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, 2023. Iris is still cold and bored in the cockles of her old heart. And I am a little bit on the fence. As I've said before, my rating system is based on watchability. So maybe it's time to take make a, a hard line in the snow and say that maybe this was a whatever movie. And there have been far worse movies that I've given a pass. Maybe I'm siding with you because of your influence on me. So what is it? Let us know what you think. How cold are your cockles? 818-350-473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. You can find all our other Christmas adjacent, Thanksgiving adjacent road trips slash people, you know, coming, learning to to appreciate or love each other kind of movies at orwhateverMovies.com. Or wherever you get podcasts. What else? I was really hoping you have no insight into the eye. Into the I, I, no, supposedly he refused. it's a big secret. Paul Giamatti would not talk about it. That said, uh, Seth Meyers showed a card on screen that there's a contact lens tech credited in huh. the movie. But that's it. Thanks for listening. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric Acid Records. 
always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. One, two, three.